city of Pekin is still missing three key leadership roles at City Hall. And I think if everybody realizes that we are in this to do what is right for the city of Pekin, I think eventually we will be able to come together. Find out how the city is trying to move forward just ahead on All Things Peoria. Good afternoon, I'm Jody Holtz. Coming up, a conversation with new Pekin Mayor Mary Burris about the current turmoil surrounding City Hall and her efforts to guide council members and the public on a path forward. And hear about a Peoria man who was wrongfully convicted of a murder in 1992 after a false witness testimony. I was an innocent man who just picked up off the street and said, give him a murder, take his life, turn his life upside down. Plus, learn how a listening tour will inform how $65 billion in funding will be spent on broadband and digital equity projects across the country. Those stories plus local news just ahead. This is WCBU's All Things Peoria on 89.9 FM in WCBU.org. Support for WCBU comes from the General Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. Flying through PIA can take you anywhere. If you're working away from home or taking a new adventure, you can fly local with American, Allegiant, or United Airlines. Trips begin and end at Peoria International Airport. Details at flypia.com. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria, and I'm your host, Jody Holtz. Thanks for joining me here on this Tuesday afternoon. New Pekin Mayor Mary Burris has been on the job for just over three weeks now, and a lot has happened under her watch already. Last week, Burris attended the funeral for fallen Pekin Police Department officer Daniel Graber, and she says she witnessed the community's ability to pull together in difficult times. Yet, turmoil still surrounds City Hall. Police Chief John Dossie has taken on a dual role as acting city manager, following the removal of interim city manager Bruce Marston. The city manager position is one of three key leadership roles Pekin still needs to hire, and clear factions have developed among the city council. In the first of their regular quarterly interviews, WCBU reporter Joe Deacon talks with Burris about her efforts to bridge the divide and guide Pekin through its issues. I'm still working on that, and um, yes, you can still see it, but I try very hard to pull us all together, and I think if everybody realizes that we are in this to do what is right for the city of Pekin, I think eventually we will be able to come together. Um, we've had some quite a few things that have hit us from, you know, from day one, and um, there have been tough decisions. I feel if we all take a deep breath, calm down, we will get accomplished, we will come together, as we, we're already starting. It, it's, it's working. City Hall's morale is already lifted. They love seeing me come in there. I'm the type that I go by and I say good morning to everyone. And I think people, they see that as a way of communicating better. They love that they have leadership now. They have a direction. So it's already starting to come together. Not quite finished, but it's starting to come together. Well, as you alluded to, already in your tenure, the council has removed Bruce Marston as interim city manager and appointed Police Chief John Dossie to fill that role temporarily. How critical is it to get a permanent city manager in place as quickly as possible? It is crucial. Um, we, Like I said, we're starting to pull together. We're starting to go in the right direction. But without a full-time city manager, we just can't quite get there. Um, Chief Dossie already has his hands full, but he was willing to step up to the plate to do what is right for our city. He shows great leadership. And um, we just chose that uh, he would be the best to fill in. We did put a time limit on it of um, July 24th. 
And I think that if anybody's been listening to our meetings, you will hear that I am already out headhunting. I have three excellent candidates that I am just talking to personally, and I challenged the council the other night to do the same, to get someone in here. Let's talk to everyone and get a good city manager. That will finalize the forwardness that we need to bring the city together. You mentioned that morale at City Hall is up. The human resources report that WCBU obtained regarding Marston's removal indicated reports of a toxic work environment. And we've seen for a while now a lot of flux among senior leadership positions. Is this ongoing, and how difficult does it make it to attract people to these vacant positions that the city needs to fill? Well, um, yes, there was that issue that we did have. um, And with a new interim city manager in place now, just not um, the acting city manager that we had for the 10 days, the people that work under the finance director, because Mr. Marston went back as finance director, they will no longer report to him. They will report to the city manager. So that has calmed people down. It has calmed the attitudes down um, that, you know, they don't feel that it's a hostile work environment as much as they did feel it. So it is helping. And once the city manager is in place, you know, we've asked the new one or the, the interim not to be hiring anyone. Just keep the ship running, keep operations going, and then the new city manager will be able to hire the people that he feels best fit that. So it it has, with putting those people under the manager versus the finance director, has already calmed the waters as well. What positions still need to be filled? What are the most crucial, aside from obviously the city manager? So the city manager, uh, HR director, EDC, those are some of the three crucial ones that need hired right away. What needs to be done to eradicate this perception of a toxic work environment within Peking government to attract people to these positions? Good leadership from the top down. Um, That comes from our first and foremost is the city manager. That city manager needs to know how to communicate, pull the city together, show what the city has to offer to get good people to apply and want to come to work for us. You are listening to All Things Peoria on WCBU. I'm Joe Deacon talking with Pekin Mayor Mary Burris. Mary, at the last city council meeting, you voted against creating a new historic preservation code, a measure that ultimately passed. Why were you opposed to this code and committee? I just feel that we need to um, listen to our options a little bit more. I think we need to slow down, find I, – I feel that we're trying to incorporate too many um, – too large of a district, we need to uh, get something established first and then maybe work out to a little more. We didn't have a clear picture on what it was going to be. Was it just the facade? Was it, you know, if there is a, a hardwood floor, it has to be put back to the exact kind of hardwood floor. We knew none of that. So I just thought, no, we need to know more before this code is passed. So that's why I voted against it. Regarding the Arcade and Tobin buildings and Tazewell County's plans for a justice center annex, it seems steps are being taken by the city council that are preventing the county from moving forward. Are you concerned at all that Tazewell County leadership could abandon their plans and look to move elsewhere outside of Pekin? I'm very concerned. I feel that we need to work with the county. We are the county seat. We have to do what is right to keep Pekin our county seat. Um, And yes, I I have talked to people. It's not just, it's not merely a threat. They are looking elsewhere and we've got to stop that. And there's certain people that want to, uh, want to be a roadblock and we have to learn how to keep businesses in town and work together. The county asked Pekin to vacate a portion of Elizabeth Street to construct a ground-level passageway between its properties, but the council rejected that request by one vote. Do you foresee any way to resolve these issues between the city and the county? Well, we are going to try our best to start working towards uh, the members that are working with the members that voted against it on why our city engineer spoke up that it would be a benefit to vacate it and give it to the um, to the county. It would then be their responsibility instead of the city taking care of all the, the road, the sewage, everything that runs 
runs through there. So it, she did try to say that it would be a benefit to uh, vacation it over to the, the county. The three, I believe, that voted against it, we had to have a supermajority. So that means all but one would have had to vote for it. So we are working hard to try to figure out why they don't want to work with the county and what the issue really is. One of the major infrastructure projects Pekin is pursuing is upgrading Court Street. Our understanding is that the plans are kind of stalled because a handful of property owners, largely out-of-state corporations, have balked at giving the city the easements needed for the project. What options are available to move this plan forward? Actually, I think there's about three that are holding things up. We are moving forward. We had a conversation the other night that if um, these companies don't want to move forward, we can, um, you know, we can go through the court system. It will hold it up somewhat, but we are still out trying to talk to those corporations, you know, to see if they were, you know, will be willing to work with the city. Um, it's it's a little sad. Some of them will just say there's been some that have been given TIF money and they don't want to turn around and work with the city. So, you know, I would hope that they could all understand that it takes both of us to work together to get a wonderful, much-needed project done. What else would you like to discuss that we haven't touched on? What other plans or projects do you have coming forward? Well, um, I have already talked to four different businesses that are um, wanting to come to the city of Pekin. I think that was part of my campaign, too, is to uh, make Pekin a more business-friendly. And um, for only being on the job a few short weeks, I am thrilled that they are already reaching out to me, and um, I can't wait to make our city grow. Just can't wait. That's Pekin Mayor Mary Burris talking to WCBU's Joe Deacon about her first three weeks in office and where the city is headed. To hear the full conversation, head to WCBU.org. This is All Things Peoria. You're listening to 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. This is All Things Peoria. I'm Jody Holtz. Roosevelt Miles was arrested in 1992 for the murder of a 16-year-old in Chicago. A Cook County judge later convicted him based on the false testimony of a witness who now says she was coerced by a corrupt cop. It wasn't until December of last year that Miles finally won his freedom. He's since relocated to Peoria, a city he says he wants to save from violence. Miles recently spoke with the Mother's War on Violence podcast host Yolanda Wallace. This is real. When mm-hmm. people don't think it's real, this is real. Wow. And it, it and people don't pay attention to it happened to them. When you were when you were incarcerated, did you have any I'm I'm sure you made friends there. Did you have any that were wrongfully convicted as you were or you know they always say when you're guilty you fight for a very short period. When you're innocent you still fight. I'm still fighting. <laughs> You know, and it's a crew right. of us that still fight. Mm-hmm. When I went down to this Innocent uh, Network conference in mm-hmm. Arizona, every time I ate, I ate with my friends I met in prison. Did you? Those okay. only convicted that got exonerated. Well, that's you good. Know, and we talk, we hug, we, we do everything. We mm-hmm. break bread together because this is family. Mm-hmm. We are family for the rest of our life. Bonded by this pain. Being bonded by it. And I got, like I said, once again, I got the best uh, law firm in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Bonjean Law Firm. She's, Jennifer is great. Ashley is great. And and you've been able to refer her to the other wrongfully yes. convicted Yes, while I was there, I had a family come awesome. down from Naperville to talk to uh, mm-hmm. one of the attorneys. Okay. Uh, she has the highest turnover rate, I think, uh and, uh, yeah, uh, Jennifer had seven designerees for 2022. She got out seven people. 
So that means that Carl they Leonard were, had about six from Lovie and Lovie. Okay, so they were wrongfully convicted, and yes. these attorneys got their cases overturned. Overturned. Yep, they brought they brought the law, and they they showed them how it's impossible for persons to do their crime. With mm -hmm. me, mm -hmm. there was no evidence, so we couldn't argue evidence. There was no okay. evidence. It was intentionally, so that would make my case different from everybody else. It was intentionally, wasn't no evidence. You put this case on me. I was an innocent man. You just picked up off the street and said, give him a murder, take his life, turn his life upside down. Mm -hmm. So with that said, as I live today, I live as a free man, but as still, some people look at me as, as having an X on my back, even though it's not there, because when mm -hmm. I go fill out applications, I got a 28-year absent. Right. I got a 28-year absent. And they ask you if you've been wrongfully convicted of a felon or something yeah, like that. Well, they can't, you know, uh, United States law saying they can't ask me if I've been convicted of a crime on, unless they're giving me an interview. So if an application mm -hmm. says that, an application needs to be tore up and they need to be reported. Because at the end of the day, you cannot judge an applicant when he's filling out an application. You only can judge him after they go through the process and they get an interview. But you know that question is on every application. Yeah, they have to take it off. They got to take it off. And, and, and you don't have to answer it. If it's on there, you don't even have to answer that. And they know this. Okay. They put it on there so they know people going to answer it. Yeah, I've been convicted. Right. You know? But um, my answer, I tell everybody, I tell my employees just like this. If I get an interview, I tell them, yeah, I was on convicted. You can read about me. I, mm -hmm. I got an exit on my paperwork that's showing that this case has been abolished. I don't exactly. know. I have right. it on my back. I keep my paperwork with me. I got it laminated so people can see it. It's, my Oscar. Right. Uh, you know, so I, 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 I had trouble finding a few jobs, but I do what I do. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do speaking engagements. I actually, I'm going to go to the Kiwani Correctional Center mm -hmm. in a couple of weeks, I guess. I just got to fill out the paperwork. I'm going to Pure Juvenile Detention Center. I just spoke at uh, Illinois, uh, Illinois State. I just spoke out there. I just spoke at Chicago State University. I just spoke at Columbia College. That's great. So I, how do you feel to be a free man I from feel, all this stuff? I was free when I was in prison. <laughs> I, I didn't let, they didn't take, they only caged my, my body, my soul, my spirit was right. always free. Your mind. Okay. Okay. You know, now, what would you say to someone who's listening, our listening audience, and they have felt like they've been wrongfully convicted well, of a crime? Well, this is what I say. If you're wrongly convicted, you're going to fight. Evidence is going to prove you just got to keep going. But if you know you've done this and you're fighting, saying you're wrongly convicted, then you're playing with yourself. You know, it, it, well, this is serious. This is somebody's life. So if you're wrongly convicted, fight. Don't give up. Fight. You know, I, I wrote a million letters. I wrote the state's attorneys. I wrote the, I, Dick Durbin. I wrote Obama. <laughs> I, I wrote everybody. Everybody. And so when my name hits people, they, they, uh, some people know who I am automatically. So you got the right. They might call you a bugaboo, but you're you an innocent man doing time for somebody else crying. Be a bugaboo. But that's what I was. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it's, I ran through mm -hmm. four typewriters fighting my case. Uh, I still, I'm a paralegal as well now. Mm -hmm. Today, I'm a paralegal. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still the voice for the voiceless. Mm -hmm. I still, I'm very uh, uh, involved in uh, the turnaround. I'm very involved in that. I'm very involved in uh, a reentry program. I'm mm -hmm. involved in that. I'm very involved in uh, cure violence. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. everywhere. I try to put my foot in. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you turn it, you making purpose out of your pain. Yes, and, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I vowed to myself, that young man that was killed, was called 16 shot Laquan McDonald. Your death didn't go in vain. I got you, brother. I'm going to make him pay. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Roosevelt Miles, for joining Mother's War on Violence. And um, we wish you well. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having me. And before you cut, there was something I know you wanted to know, and you didn't ask me. What was that? What's my mission for Peoria? That's right. That's that's exactly it. <laughs> my mission is to save Peoria. Peoria is in dire need of help. Mm-hmm. It is. And for all these leaders that's out there, y'all need to listen to what I have to say. I'm here to help. I'm sitting in your backyard. Y'all know me, and y'all can get in touch with me anytime, anywhere. That was Roosevelt Miles speaking with Yolanda Wallace. Hear the full podcast on WCPU.org or download it from Apple, the NPR app, or Spotify. This is All Things Peoria. Thanks for choosing WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria. I'm Jody Holtz. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Act included more than $65 billion in funding for broadband and digital equity projects across the country. WCBU's Colin Shope spoke with Robbie McBeth from the University of Illinois' Illinois Broadband Lab about a listening tour to build a plan for those funds. States are now in the position of getting themselves ready to figure out how to um, spend that money and achieve goals like closing the digital divide and promoting digital equity and digital opportunity. Would you explain what role the Illinois Broadband Lab plays in that process? The Illinois Broadband Lab is a pretty new collaboration. It's really the one-stop shop, I would say, for mapping and data, for um, broadband programming, and just communication of different digital equity initiatives going on at the state level. It came into being through a partnership between the Illinois Office of Broadband, which is based out of the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, um, and the University of Illinois Systems, particularly the Illinois Innovation Network, um, to really help, I think, the capacity of the state broadband office. They had been trying to you know, manage hundreds of millions of dollars in broadband funding and do broadband programming with a really, really small staff. And so the idea was, how can we kind of leverage resources across the state um, to really deliver better services and information um, and and kind of just broadband programming in general to everyone across the state. Your part in this for the past few weeks, right, has been traveling around doing these listening sessions. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the places you've been and what uh, how those meetings have been going. This year is all about basically crafting um, plans that will get submitted to um, NTIA out of the Department of Commerce. Um, that those plans, you know, kind of have to showcase how we'll use funds and everything else. And so because of that, there's a lot of requirements. Uh, and one of them is is to ultimately get a snapshot of digital equity in your state, what residents are saying, connect with stakeholder groups, um, what's known as covered populations. So this might be veterans, people with lower incomes, uh, minority populations, um, just a whole host of different um, people that generally statistically are shown to be kind of on the other side of di- the digital divide or experience digital inequities or lack of opportunities. So I think by the end of this, we're going to have well over something like 50 um, sessions Audiences are generally geared around kind of residents of of communities, the nonprofit community, as well as local government and public entity leaders. 
Um, and it's it's been really, really informative to, to, to go, you know, all across the state to hear what people have to say around their needs um, and, and, and situations, because um, when you don't have broadband or it's not available at the speeds that you need, there's a lot of opportunities missed out upon and uh, people are going to be vocal about it. Uh, would you talk a little bit about how broadband access uh, or lack of broadband access leads to inequities and lack of opportunities? Absolutely. And I think um, one of the things that we try to stress just in how people think about this problem, there's really kind of two divides. There's the access divide, meaning is broadband available at you know particular speeds, let's say 100 megabits per second down, 20 megabits per second up. That's what's considered served. Is broadband just available at your home or your farm or your business at those speeds? That's that's one aspect of it is, is kind of literally just the infrastructure there. Then there's the adoption divide, which is have you you know, subscribe to broadband or brought it into your home in some way. And that is more around, I think, something like 68 or 72 percent as a statewide average compared to the service side of things, which is around 90 percent are served. So, you know, if you have fast Internet at, at capable speeds, at affordable speeds in your house, especially during the pandemic, that meant I could I could continue working remotely. Maybe it might mean my child would be able to attend school without significant interruptions, let's say, or, or other opportunities. Um, and, and just the freedoms and a lot of the creativity that the internet ultimately provide become available. It might be telemedicine, it might mean banking opportunities, it might mean a whole host of things. And so um, for people that are without that access, that that means, you know, impacts so many other aspects of their life, their child not being able to um, keep up in school, uh, potentially losing a job or being unable to continue with a job, um, not being able to see a doctor at an affordable rate. Not only that, you know, there's costs to to drive to places to have broadband. So a lot of people, we've been hearing that at our listening sessions where people say, um, the service is not adequate in my house. We end up driving, you know, 10 miles sometimes to the local library or to a McDonald's to use it. But that also costs gas money and time. That was Robbie McBeth from the Illinois Broadband Lab. He says the listening sessions, more than 50 hours of information, are just one of the many sources of data the lab will use to build a plan and recommendations for the state. And that is all for today's episode of All Things Peoria from WCBU, a public service of Bradley University and Illinois State University. I'm Jody Holtz. Thanks for listening. Story help today came from Joe Deacon, Yolanda Wallace, and Colin Shope. Holden Kellogg produced this episode of All Things Peoria, which is made possible in part by the General Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. For more information on all of these stories, head to WCBU.org. And of course, you can subscribe to the All Things Peoria podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or the NPR app. And we do want to know what you think of the show. If you want to let us know, comment on our Facebook page. We're Peoria Public Radio. And you can give us a follow on Instagram at WCBU. WCBU Radio. This is 89.9 FM and WCBU.org, Peoria Public Radio, part of the NPR Network.